No, I don't think they're hiding something. I think it is all what I described as nudge. You find a methodology, you find an approach so that you can publish the numbers that satisfy the political interest of the regime in power. The overarching takeaway from this conversation for me is if we want to preserve what's most important about open society and liberal democracies, then the thing that is causing us the most frustration ends up sort of needing to be the thing we love most about where we live and who we are. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass. Hello and welcome to the Gestalt University podcast. I'm your host, Adam Butler, CIO of Resolve Global. This episode features Ben Hunt founder of Second Foundation Partners, which hosts the popular Epsilon Theory content portal. I started following Ben through the original Epsilon Theory blog soon after he published his first article in 2013, and I've been an aspiring member of Ben's pack ever since. If you haven't joined Ben and his team of modern psychohistorians at Epsilon Theory, I urge you to check it out now. I reached out to Ben because I'd been starting to feel myself shifting gears in terms of my feelings and perceptions around the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And I knew that Ben would be able to help me put things in a proper perspective. For context, it was shortly after a dinner with Ben in February 2020 that I finally came to terms with the potential for the then nascent novel coronavirus to manifest in a global pandemic. The day after our dinner, Rodrigo and I hosted Ben in person on our podcast, and I recall studiously avoiding the topic of the pandemic because I was still worried that Ben was overstating the risks, and I didn't want it to come to dominate the conversation. Needless to say, I have some regrets about that. Of course, over the next few days after that dinner, Tom Hanks and his wife announced they were positive for the virus. The NBA canceled their basketball season. Markets proceeded to implode. And in general, all hell broke loose. Fast forward to today, skipping over the year that felt like a decade. Well, a few weeks ago, I started to notice my feelings about the pandemic were shifting. 
For most of the past 18 months or so, I have been firmly in support of most of the measures taken by governments to manage the health impact of the virus. My family and I adhered strictly to lockdown guidelines, supported border closures, followed all protocols, received vaccines and boosters, etc. as soon as they were available. But over the past few weeks, I'd felt myself becoming frustrated with the lack of progress on the policy front. After all, let's face it, residents of developed countries have had access to highly effective vaccines for almost nine months. Every resident has had ample opportunity to get fully vaccinated at no financial cost, and residents of many countries have had plenty of time to get free booster shots. Also, many people, including those who contracted the virus before the vaccines or who have chosen not to get vaccinated, have subsequently contracted COVID and recovered, generating so-called natural immunity to the virus. Moreover, it seemed to me that we now have several very large, high-powered, I mean in a statistical sense, studies that we can use to assess the risk of different types of adverse outcomes, for example, asymptomatic, symptomatic, severe disease, hospitalization, oxygenation, ICU, morbidity, and mortality, conditioned on important variables like age, comorbidities, and vaccination status, including, for example, the type of vaccine that was received and the length of time since the most recent vaccination. My sense from personally reviewing the studies and triangulating on the views of specialists who had reviewed the studies was that the risk of serious outcomes like serious illness, hospitalization, etc., was negligible for the vast majority of double and triple vaccinated persons especially those who received Pfizer and Moderna shots, while a very small minority of persons, typically of extreme age or with multiple comorbidities, still face risks, these persons face similar risks from other factors every day, and we can accommodate vulnerable persons in creative ways without materially restricting the freedoms of everyone else. Armed with these studies, I felt we should be able to enact much more thoughtful policies that would allow most residents of developed countries to just get on with our lives. Yet still, here we are. And it's the strangest thing. Everyone I talk to seems to be much more terrified of testing positive than of actually getting the virus. Everyone wants to travel or go back to university or see family, basically do the things that allow them to live a fulfilling life with the people we care about. But they're petrified about facing trip cancellations, quarantines, and or huge expenses from the consequences of a positive COVID test. Isn't the world upside down when most people are more afraid of running afoul of the regulations in place to prevent a danger than they are of the danger itself? So, these are the themes I felt I needed to cover with Ben. And we did cover most of them in our 90-minute conversation. I'll say Ben was extremely patient and generous with his time, wisdom, and insights. However, I admit to still feeling like several critical points went unresolved. I hasten to say that this gap was definitely my fault and not Ben's. It just took me a few days of further ruminating after our chat to see the holes that I wanted to fill. Anyway, I think this is an important and timely conversation with someone who understands the topic from top to bottom and who sees the issues with clear eyes and a full heart. I hope you get as much value out of, out of it as I did. And I look forward to any questions or comments that you might leave in the thread below. Thank you. All right. I'm on with Ben Hunt. Ben, welcome. Thank you, Adam. I feel like it's been a little over a year, I think, since we were together under similar circumstances, more of <laughs> a right. 
one-on-one type of chat. I actually think we had an occasion for you to be in the office. This would have been sort of late February of 2020, right? You were in Toronto for a dinner, I think. Yep. I think I was like the last plane out of Toronto the next day before COVID totally shut everything down. And the scene at the Toronto airport was pretty striking. It had that fall of Saigon kind of feel to it, not going to lie. That's a really good metaphor, actually. And I remember that week so vividly. And I remember even the weeks leading up to it, I was very unconvinced. And then we went to this dinner and stayed afterwards and had some drinks and had a nice heated discussion about all of the different factors that were at play. And I left there and woke up the next morning feeling very receptive to the fact that this was a much bigger deal than I had given credit to previously. And then we got together the next day for a more comprehensive chat. And then I think it was either that day or the day after that the NBA shut down the season, Tom Hanks and his wife admitted to having it. And that seemed to set off this chain reaction, which was much more of an awareness or attention type of phenomenon than anything related to the virus itself. True story. I was the one, this sounds nuts, but it's actually true. I was the one who broke on Twitter the news that the Denver Nuggets player was COVID positive. It's crazy. Anyway, they were playing the Houston Rockets and a good friend of mine is very close to some of the Rockets players and family. So anyway, for whatever reason, that information got to me. So I scooped all Woj and all the other kind of ESPN reporters. I scooped them by about 10 minutes <laughs> by tweeting out that dude was out and it was because of COVID and that led to the shutdown of the season. So crazy times, right? Crazy times. And it's hard to believe it was only a year ago or a year and a half ago. I know some years contain decades. I would love to sort of start off by setting the table because I reached out to you to have this conversation. I felt very urgent about needing to have a debriefing because you were the one that sort of helped to shepherd in my own awareness of the seriousness of this pandemic early on. And since that time, really up until maybe six weeks, eight weeks ago, I was fully on board. I was 100% in the camp of let's do everything we can to flatten the curve. Let's do everything we can to roll out as many vaccines as possible, as broadly as possible, as quickly as possible. I was admiring your Greenfield's efforts to distribute masks and fully in favor of mask protocols and lockdowns and flight cancellations or banning flights from different regions in order to contain the spread of the virus. And just in the last six to eight weeks, I've begun to feel frustrated with what I perceive as a lack of progress, not so much in the science, if you want to dig into that, and I'm trying to use science as like lowercase science, as in the pursuit of empirical truth, and not the sort of politically loaded, because the science seems to be continuing. We've got all kinds of really interesting helpful papers that are coming out. There was a really comprehensive study out of Sweden. They've got really excellent data. I hope you've seen that study or a summary of it or reference to it. But there's been a variety of really great research that's come out over the last six months to a year that's helped those of us who are inclined to dig into the details to wrap our heads around some of the important dimensions of how to think about the problem. But what I was noticing is that the 
media narrative and the political narrative was getting further and further detached from what I was reading in the better science journals and policy was therefore getting further and further detached from what seemed like a logical way for the thinking to evolve and for policy to evolve. And I found myself becoming extremely frustrated, again, as a guy who had really bought into, let's call it the sort of the institutional narrative for most of the pandemic, embracing lockdown, embracing that. I'm triple vaxxed. I got that as quickly as possible for me and my family have always advocated for it. I'm now frustrated and becoming disconnected from that. And so that was why I was feeling very urgently like I wanted to connect with you. So I would love to get your sense of how you feel your observation of the actual pandemic has evolved over the last year or so. And maybe again, sort of over the last three to six months, as more research has come in and as we've seen what happened with the Delta variants and with the vaccines and with the new Omicron variant, et cetera. And then contrast that with what you're observing in terms of the dominant narratives and how policy has evolved in response. First, I'll describe kind of my personal response to everything around the virus, which is very similar to yours, Adam. I'd say with the exception of, I'll call it kind of the lockdown piece of this, right? I've never been a lockdown guy with the exception of a true flatten the curve issue which we absolutely had in the early days of this. I'll call it wave one, particularly in the Northeast. And by being not a lockdown guy, what I mean is I am so for individuals, and that includes companies, saying, nope, we're locking down, right? You want to come in our store, you're wearing a mask. You want to do this, you're going to do that. I've always been very, not just wary, but actually kind of anti a top-down non-emergency directive from government, whether it is for a lockdown or more recently in the case of vaccine mandates. I am as pro-vax as they come, and I've spent a lot of time on effort and energy on true PPE and getting that distributed in opposition to, again, the other thing that kind of makes me wary and weary, which is the theater around the virus, whether it was the early days of oh, let's hold up a thermometer to your head, right? Or, oh, you know, let's put on a cloth mask underneath your nose. You know, the theatrics of this have always bugged me a lot. The hygiene theater, I think I stole that term from you. If not from you, then, you know, yeah. Yeah, while at the same time, I've devoted a big part of my life to distributing, to sourcing and distributing and real PPE in 95 and 95 equivalents to healthcare professionals, frontline, all that. And I still use them myself in our family. We're big believers in social distancing, in masking with true protection, with the triple vaxxing and all the like. And my strong view it is, is that it is every person's responsibility as a citizen, as a human being, to get vaxxed. And I'm also entirely for any company that wants to say, hey, you want to work here? You got to get vaxxed. Good for you, frankly. Where I am very and it's hard to kind of hold these two thoughts in your head or to express them publicly for the reasons that I'll describe. I'm also very much opposed to a government mandate says, thou shalt get vaxxed. And by the way, you know, you can't do X, Y, or Z if you don't get vaxxed. I think that what we've seen throughout the pandemic from every country, starting with China, going to the United States, going to Europe, go to every country, 
has tried to impose a domestic political narrative and policy on top of this virus. Right, let's say starting with China. And continue to this day, I wrote a series of notes and tweets that got a big response on how the World Health Organization, my view, has been totally captured by Beijing. And so the World Health Organization's policies are designed primarily for Chinese political interests rather than global health interests. A lot of times those interests don't conflict, but when they do, the World Health Organization favors the Chinese political interest over global health interest. My strong view is you can say exactly the same thing about every government, every regime on earth. You can absolutely say that about the Trump administration. You can absolutely say that about the Biden administration. Again, my personal view is that there are fewer conflicts between the political interests of the Biden administration and national health interests than there were between the political interests of the Trump administration and national health interests. But for both, when those interests collide, the government... The political interests prevail. Correct. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing today. I think that's what gives you and me real pause at the policy pronouncements that are going on. Because when they conflicted with the Trump administration, my view was they conflicted in a way such that the policy did not do enough for national health interests. Here, it's different. I think we've got, as you said, the smallest science, whether it's vaccines, whether it's therapeutics, whether it's monitoring, whether it's testing. It took too long, but we're getting there on the smallest science. But the policies, I find, then are increasingly at odds with, as you said, the smallest science and in favor of, I'll say, however the political interests are construed. Case in point, I'll say the issue that's caused me the most consternation in terms of this conflict between political interest and health interest is that in this country, unlike most of Europe, unlike certainly Israel, zero, I'll call it credit in terms of vaccination, whether in terms of protection is given to, oh yeah, I had COVID. I had antibodies because I had COVID. Not I'm talking about one. Somebody who has endured COVID, they say, well, that does give me some antibody protection. It's different from a vaccine protection. If I had to characterize the difference, I would say actually that the vaccine protection is, I think, better, but it doesn't last as long, roughly speaking, right? But there is some protection that vaccination, that enduring COVID gives you. And that is not recognized in U.S. policy. It's not recognized at all. And again, that's very different from other countries, both Europe and especially Israel, right? There's a balance. It counts for something because it gives you antibodies. And those antibodies mean something. And yet we now have a policy, a national policy that says, nope, doesn't exist, doesn't happen, when clearly it does. Let's start there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. What are the political interests, in your opinion, that would motivate this policy, which seems to run in direct contravention to any interpretation, any sensible interpretation of basic immunology? My personal view is because it is a stance that in a sense, rewards the party that's out of power, (laughs) right? It gives credit to the people who I think foolishly and mistakenly said, oh, no, I'm not going to vax, you know, the COVID's nothing, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just like the flu or the cold. And then they got it and 
a lot of people have died. A lot of people still suffer the symptoms, but for a lot of people, it wasn't a big deal. And those people <laughs> are primarily on the other side. They're in the other tribe. And that's why I say that a domestic political interest to not give credit or anything that rewards their tribe. We saw it so much more clearly in the Trump administration, but it's not just the Trump administration. It's this administration too. It's the Biden administration too. It bugs the crap out of me, Adam. It really does. It really does. It's a perfect example of what you were describing about how most of the time political interests and health interests are aligned, but when they aren't, political interests take precedence. Yeah. Exactly right. What kills me, and frankly, Adam, what I think kills us as a society, is that the constant nudging that we are exposed to, nudging in the sense of, no, 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 you know, it's really, you have to, you know, it doesn't count. Your natural immunity, it doesn't count. Of course it counts. It's different. And everyone who I know who says, no, I had it, I don't need to get vaccine, to my encouragement, I said, no, please look at the small s science. Please look at how, if you have endured COVID and have those naturally forming antibodies, please look at the protection that that plus vaccination gives you. It basically makes you superhuman in your ability to avoid getting infected. Please look at that. It's not an either or, but it's become a political either or. Everything in our world becomes auto-tuned into you're either on one tribe or the other, and there is no common ground. There is no place to meet here. You can't be both pro-vax and anti-mandate like I am. That position does not exist politically, and so you are auto-tuned out of any conversation. The damage this does, Adam, for all of us is so profound. It makes comments like, you know, follow the science meaningless because neither side does it. Well, the subtext is follow the guidance of your political allegiance. <laughs> you got it. Exactly. That's what we describe as it's the widening gyre. This is not a mean reverting phenomenon, Adam. It's not something that gets better over time. It continues to spiral more and more into, $10 phrase, a bimodal distribution of preferences, <laughs> you know, where there is no middle. The middle does not hold. And that doesn't work structurally for a political system, like in the US, like in most Western nations, that is built around the notion of single peak distribution in the middle, that that's where your coalitions form. Yeah, and consensus building. Exactly right. Instead, you swing from pillar to post, from one tribe being in control to the other tribe being in control. It reflects itself in structurally in politics. It's just a matter of time before the filibuster goes away in the Senate. And so it's just going to be swinging back and forth for whoever's got 50% plus one. And the result is, I think, frankly, disastrous for a nation. Not for a country necessarily, but for a nation. It's my favorite line about what is a nation. Well, it's a group that has remembers a lot, has that common history and knowledge, but has also forgotten a lot. You forget the differences. You forget. In this world, whatever side you're on, you never forget. You never forget. You never put aside the last thing because it's always a zero-sum game of us versus them. Trump spoke this out loud. He said, basically, he's very clear. I'm not a president for all Americans. I'm a president for my Americans. That's an astonishing statement. <laughs> How sad is that? And yet, it's true. Whew, just don't like where we're going. No, I hear you. So just, again, sort of relate this back to where we are with the pandemic. 
one of the things that I've really noticed in the last few weeks, as we've gotten really good, high power, large sample data on COVID and the conditional expected impacts of COVID based on things like whether you're male or female, based on age, based on vaccination status, both type of vaccine and number of vaccinations that you've had. We have really good data on that now, on all of the variants, with the possible exception of the new Omicron variant. So it's actually eminently possible for the institutions who gather this data to publish data as a matrix of current cases, hospitalizations, fatalities, conditioned on these variables that we now know are extremely important to how we interpret our own personal risk and the general community risk within the population. And yet try as I might, even in the United States and even in places like Scandinavia and Western Europe, where they have extremely proficient and comprehensive data collection institutions and protocols, it's still impossible to find stratified data. So data that is divided up into sex and age and vaccination status, for example. Do you have any idea why this would be? Either they're hiding this information or for some reason, they're unable to gather information at that level of granularity. Do you have any insight into what's going on there? I think what is happening here is that, and then I'll give you a specific example of how this plays out. And it played out in the last administration, Trump administration and CDC data. It's a really important question, which is how many people have had COVID and have antibody protection, but weren't reported as a case? Hugely. It's just such a critical question. Agreed. Yep. Because you need to know this because if there's antibody protection, because, you know, 10 times as many people actually had COVID than were reported as a case or a reported case, well, that changes the potential trajectory of future infections and the like dramatically. You're absolutely right. It changes how you should think about a vaccination policy. It changes everything. And what you found was that the CDC, again, this under the Trump administration, two things happened. The first was there were these pardon my language, bullshit, zero prevalence studies that were done kind of early on by the Ioannidis and the Scott Atlases of the world or looking at this and saying that, oh my God, we already have herd immunity. That was the initial notion that, oh no, we already have herd immunity. It's already kind of washed through these huge populations. And so it's over. Thank goodness it's over. And that was ridiculous. And then and the studies themselves were bad. So that was kind of these kind of one-off things that were used then for political interests of the Trump administration. With a cost measured in tens to hundreds of thousands of deaths. Yes, absolutely right. But then the CDC said, we don't have enough of these seroprevalence studies to make a small s science estimate. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to make our estimates on case fatality rates and infection fatality rates based on our modeling of how many people have had COVID but weren't reported. And we're going to use that to our data for doing this modeling. I'm, you know, I'm not making this up, is the studies we did on influenza in prior years for how many people would get the flu but didn't go to the doctor and report it and the like. 
which I don't know about you, if I've got COVID, it ain't the flu. Our behaviors around COVID are not the same behaviors as we had around flu. So the CDC used this then to say, oh, based on our models, we think the IFR, the infection fatality rate, is like 15 basis points, meaning that if you are infected, your chances of dying are 0.15% based on this state, meaning that they were projecting that like 100 or 130 million Americans had had COVID, but was never reported. This was the CDC. This was the estimates. And real policy was made on the basis of this insanely low IFR number. My personal view, the IFR number is, you know, probably 60 or 70 basis points. It's not the case fatality rate, but it's in that 60, 70, 75 basis points range, which makes it the most dangerous thing that I will ever do in my life is to catch COVID. Most dangerous thing. I'm 57 years old. And the conditional fatality rate. That's right. To your point, the IFR for me, 57-year-old male, I weigh 220. I'm six feet tall. So that's not great. I don't have a lot of health issues, you know, thank God. But I figure my chances of my conditional probabilities that you're describing it, probably 1%, probably 3 or 4% if the healthcare in my area is overwhelmed. Yeah. That changes. There's a path-dependent element of it too. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely right, right? But what we had to do was we had to not only do those kind of calculations, each of us individually, those conditional calculations that we're describing, but we had to do that individually at the same time that the CDC, the authority in the United States for providing that information and that data was when you dug into it, it was bullshit what they were reporting. It was absolute bullshit what they were reporting. So to your question, are they trying to hide something? No, I don't think they're hiding something. I think it is all what I described as nudge. You find a methodology, you find an approach so that you can publish the numbers that satisfy the political interest of the regime in power. This is a long answer to your question, but the long answer to my question is, I don't trust any of it. I don't trust any of it. And I don't know how anyone can. Do you trust the numbers that Beijing puts out about what happened in Wuhan and Hubei? Of course not. I mean, that was the first piece I published on this. The the numbers were clearly made up. They were made up. Yeah, I mean, you can't replicate that trajectory in nature. (laughs) Exactly. That was the point of the article. But I can tell you exactly what that line looks like if you had a model that said, okay, I want a 1% decline in acceleration per day. That's what the numbers are. If somebody decides, is we're going to decide what the numbers are. And it's not that extreme in the United States, but I've seen it happen. It may be a clear example of, in many jurisdictions, you can give them the benefit of the doubt is actually publishing accurate numbers, but they're not publishing numbers that matter. They're not framing it in a way that allows the public to interpret it effectively. Absolutely right. I'm sorry, my favorite example of this, right? was states that decided we're not going to do the date of death. We're not going to do an as-reported death number. We're going to backtrack and show when the death occurred. And so what that looks like then, on any graph that does this, is that miraculously over the last two weeks, oh my God, people stopped dying. It's getting better. And it's always getting better over the last two weeks when you see it graphically, because the death certificate that you get is from somebody who died two weeks ago. You're not reporting the data from the hospital saying, okay, how many people died today from this report? No, you're saying, okay, well, we've got the reports calling. Now we're going to go back and we're going to report some prior date of death or date of infection or what have you. And it creates this 
visualization that looks like things are getting better. Yeah. And that is the core domestic political interest to show that no matter what event is happening, you're showing it's okay. Things are getting better. So let's take your point that the reason why we're getting data filtered through such an extreme prism and we're not getting data that is useful, timely, or relevant is because the political interests are dominating the health interests in the United States. I don't think that we can make such an extreme statement everywhere. Can we say the same thing about Iceland or Norway or Sweden or Brazil or France or Germany? We're observing the same type of phenomenon. Like I can't even, if I look at the data coming out of Germany or France or Britain, Scandinavia seems to be a little bit better in terms of publishing stratified data in a way that you can draw more relevant conclusions, but they often don't publish it in English, or if they do, it's published on a delay, and et cetera. So, I mean, this seems to be an omnipresent phenomenon where maybe it's top down from the World Health Organization that this is the policy. I mean, what is your take on it? My take is that this cuts across so many different aspects of how we try to understand this virus and the disease. And you see humans naturally trying different reactions to this. And I'll, now I use ivermectin because what you'll say is that Weinsteins will say, oh, no, no, we're going to look at kind of the meta study. We're going to look at all the different studies that have been done on ivermectin, and we're going to put them together into the meta study, and we're going to conclude, voila, that ivermectin is this wonderful, essentially both prophylactic and cure. There are two issues with this, right? The first is a garbage in, garbage out issue, right? Which is that the individual studies, when you dig into them, particularly in the ivermectin issue, they are just for shit, to use the technical term. Yeah, the highest power studies were actually basically fraudulent. Correct. Just outright fraudulent. Is it very similar to the seroprevalence story studies that the Erionitis and Atlas were doing early on out in California? It's just bullshit. The second problem is that doing these kind of meta studies, which is basically kind of what you're talking about doing, Adam, right? It's like, okay, we got some information from Iceland, we get this from Israel, we get this from Scandinavia, we've got the raw data here from the United States, and like, so how do we put that all together? It's so difficult to put it all together. And what I mean by so difficult is that, not that the math is particularly hard or wrong, but that mathematically they are often incompatible that our brains, the human animal, will find connections and find patterns here that are as likely or as not spurious. And the term sheets are different. Great way to put it for our audience, yes. The term sheets are different. How do we define the definition of serious illness? How were the tests conducted? I mean, one of the most ironically funny observations we've had living in Cayman is that when you go in for a PCR test, they basically take a sample of your lower cerebral cortex. Like that's how far up into your sinuses they go. When you get the test in Miami, you basically go around the outside of the bottom of your nose. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly right. So I think that there are such profound limitations to making these sort of meta studies and I'll say 
taking a small s science approach to what we're doing here. And where I come out on this, coming back to kind of where we started, which is that I think that the way to understand this is not in terms of, oh, this is a replicatable experiment that we are going to do a cost-benefit analysis on. I think that is a profound mistake for social policy. Instead, I think it's important in these situations for all of us, and all of us both individually and as a collective, as a government, to, I'm going to use my you know, minimax regret, to minimize the maximum regret. Because when you're dealing with existential issues, when you're dealing with death, this is not a repeatable experiment. There is no control group. There is no expected utility calculation where you win as a country if two million people you know, died over there, but only you know, a million and a half died over here over some time period. This is not a game. It's not a contest. It's not an expected utility calculation. It's a tragedy and that all of us have to show empathy, which is the hardest thing for not just other people in our family and our immediate circle, but for our country and for the world, the freaking world. And that's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to love your neighbor. I'm just saying have empathy for your neighbor. Our bodies are decaying. All of us are going to be sick. We're all there. We're just on different time frames. <laughs> it's just having this on us towards others. So what does that mean to have that minimize maximum regret approach? It means not auto-tuning into camps, to resisting the political imperatives that bleat at us, to respect the decisions of others, and to expect for others to respect our decisions, and to have that responsibility to get vaccinated, because it is your responsibility not just for yourself, but for others, for others. And we should expect a government that, that gives us that same respect too. So I agree, I guess, and I know that you're sort of meta point here is it's complicated and there are many competing interests and it's fuzzy, it's hairy, it's ugly. To that point, we operate with our own set of wants and needs and preferences, each one of us. To an extent, those wants and needs are constrained by norms, rules, policy, and those preferences are multidimensional. So I completely agree with you that a mini-max regret approach is probably an optimal approach for a wide array of problems, of which our response to pandemics is a great example. At the same time, and not to get too technical, this is not a one-dimensional problem. There's a Pareto frontier of different objectives. For example, one thing that I have just really discovered a profound desire for, I'm not going to go so far as to say need, but it's, it's how it feels, is to, is to see my family, is to see my friends, is to be able to travel and spend quality time and have experiences with my children before they leave home. For my daughter, when she wants to go off to university we're able to go see the university and, and have a full experience seeing each of the different schools she might want to go to so that she can make an informed decision. When she gets there, she can have a fulfilling university experience. Adam, what's your maximum regret? The reason I'm asking is not put you on the spot. What you just described, what you've elucidated is a maximum regret, that you would lose that. 
So you know what I say? Minimize that. And you should have the ability to minimize that. Maximum regret doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you know, my maximum regret is getting sick from COVID. Oh, yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. But what I'm saying is from a policy standpoint, it seems like the only objective function that we are, I'll grant the U.S. actually has, in a weird way, maybe sought to maximize different objectives to too much of an extent, actually. But then other countries have taken the exact opposite view. And it seems like policy response and the communication around the pandemic is such that all anybody seems to prioritize from a political standpoint is minimizing maximum regret for those whom the thing that they would maximally regret is getting COVID. I put it another way, right? So you're right. And that's exactly why I am anti-government vax mandate. I am profoundly pro-vax and I'm anti the vax mandate. This is exactly what I'm talking about. But this complicates that too, right? Because I wanted to sort of poke at this as you were talking about it, because my initial instinct would be similar, I think. People have to make their own choices and weigh their own priorities and preferences. The challenge I see is that when people decide that they are not going to get the vaccine, it then increases the risks that everybody else faces. And it increases stuff like the potential for hospitals being overrun, which means that now people that are vaccinated and have other health problems are unable to get those health problems treated. Or the prevalence rates in communities are so high that governments will feel forced to enact greater restrictions or travel restrictions or et cetera. We're now in a multidimensional game where the actions of each other profoundly affect one another. And so I don't know how you weigh off this libertarian view. Maybe I'm overstating that a little bit, and I don't mean to tribalize it or recharacterize it. The problem is that libertarians become this ridiculous word. I mean, it's like saying, you know, you're a communist, and it becomes a ridiculous word. This is exactly why I care so much about providing protection, real protection, to healthcare workers, to anyone who does not have a choice but to be exposed. What really bugs the crap out of me is when you layer on the political interests of basically resisting vaccination as a political statement, which is why I would say 99% of the people who I know who are not vaccinated are not vaccinated as a political statement because of politics, purely because of politics. And that's just like, God, how sad is that? And yet, I believe very strongly that the alternative for the government to take up the hyper-paternalistic approach, let's say, of a France or of a place that says, nope, you must get the vaccine, I think that is worse. I do. What about a carrot and stick type approach? Or is that too nudging? Way too nudging. To, to your point earlier, right? The S, the little S size, I, I mean, it's there. And I think you are bad citizen. I really mean this. If you don't get vaccinated, I think you are a foolish human being if you don't do the vaccine. And yet, I'm not going to think you're a bad person if you get the vaccine. And I don't believe that X some urgency, X the, the hospital system is overwhelmed, 
that there's a fire burning right 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 around us that a centrist you know non-bimodal government of the people for the people and by the people can persist if the endemic not disease but the endemic policy is to say thou must do x that we are going to impose on you what your preferences are how do you square that with the fact that we obviously already have mandatory vaccine mandates for stuff like polio and mumps and rubella and measles and 99.9% of all children who go through the school system have been vaccinated with these these sterilizing vaccines yeah. <laughs> i mean that's a big difference right there there's going to be a difference i mean we don't have to my knowledge a requirement anywhere that you get a flu vaccine every year you can have private employers that may require that and encourage that and the like. But to the best of my knowledge, you're not required to get that annual flu vaccine, a non-sterilizing vaccine for flu. I'm pretty sure I'm right there. So actually, maybe unpack that. No, no, I think you are right. But maybe unpack that, what you mean by that, like a sterilizing versus non-sterilizing vaccine. Just that definition. The vaccine, again, I'm the most pro-vaccine person you'll meet, right, for COVID. It demonstrably improves both my ability to not acquire it in the first place, but then the outcomes that I will suffer if I do acquire it are going to be muted because of experiencing the vaccine. That said, it does not eliminate that I can still get it. It's improving my odds. It improves my chances in the same way that a flu vaccine improves your chances. And I'll keep getting boosters and I'll keep getting variant shots. I've got zero problem with that. Zero problem at all. But what I do have a problem with, and it's not necessarily even a slippery slope argument, what I do have a problem with is for the government in the absence of a fire. Because I understand I'm not making this quote-unquote libertarian argument where there are no competing interests here. Of course there are competing interests. And the state has a compelling interest in preventing plague, <laughs> right? And I've got such wide latitude for this. And yet, I also think that we are being both nudged and required to do things that I think cross that line. And I don't know how else to say it other than that, other than that I think there is an alternative. I really do think there is an alternative, an alternative based on principles of individual autonomy and individual responsibility. And if people don't live up to those responsibilities, which, again, include in my book, getting vaccinated, if people don't live up to their responsibilities, well, shame on you. And I'm going to continue to try to protect myself and my family as best I can. And I'm going to do everything I can to protect the people who have no choice in the matter. See, what I'm most interested in is, in terms of policy, is the policy that, uh, well, are you an essential worker? Well, um, no, you should really get back to driving that truck. You should really get back to driving that truck. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's all well and good, and it's about, no, you can't quit. Or we're going to, if you do quit, we're, we're going to cut down to your unemployment benefits, right? No, no, you need to get back out there, soldier, on the front line. So how do you manage that dynamic from a policy perspective? From a policy perspective, and again, it's the notion that everyone should have the ability to exercise that choice. That choice is going to come with some real consequences. Well, in theory, that trucker can exercise that choice, but it means that the employer is allowed to let him go and replace him with somebody who 
makes a different choice. Correct. And the answer to that then is that I'm going to call it a safe harbor, a federal safe harbor for unemployment benefits because of COVID concerns. If you're fired, that's why we had to have these federal unemployment benefits because, you know, the state benefits, A, ran out, and B, if you quit your job, if you're fired, yeah, you get unemployment. But if you just quit, there are real issues with whether you can qualify for unemployment benefits. Real issues here. So I wrote a long note about this, right? It's that what do you do when rights collide? The government absolutely is an arbiter of those rights. Absolutely should be. And my view is you have to protect the people who have no choice, like healthcare workers. You have to provide this safe harbor for benefits for people who make the decision, no, I can't be out there and expose myself and my family to what's going on. You need to support that. You need to protect that. But at the same time, it works both ways, either mandating that private employers can't impose a shutdown or the like. You have to keep going. That's a government decision too, which I think is just as hostile to being a free autonomous person than saying, oh, thou must get your vaccine. I think both of these approaches are wrong. I don't think that either approach is required. I think there really is a principled, frankly, middle here that supports autonomy of individual choices rather than seeking at every point to squash it. Okay, so maybe I'm not giving this... You've said this a couple of times now and I've kind of bowled over you, so I apologize <laughs> for that. Can you dig into that in a little bit more detail or just flesh it out a little bit more, even if you can't be exact? Like, what exactly do you mean by there is a solution based on individual autonomy? How, does, how might that work? I think it's what you see today. When there is a terrible outbreak of this disease, we're not stupid. We're smart enough to make our own decisions and we stay at home businesses shut their doors. And it is not because government said you must close, but it's because, no, this isn't right. And I think that employees should have that same ability to make their own decision for themselves. You have the ability to say, no, you know what? My employer wants me to come in. I don't think it's safe. Meatpacking plants in Iowa, for example. The government said, no, 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 you got to come in. You got to come into the meatpacking plant. And of course, the meatpackers say, no, no, yeah, you got to come in. Wasn't safe. It's dangerous. I want those individual employees of those meatpacking plants say, you know what? This doesn't work for me and my family. I'm not going to come into work. The meatpacker says, you're fired. The government says, you don't get unemployment benefits. You know what I'm saying? There's a federal safe harbor that says, you know what? You get unemployment benefits for making that decision as an employee. I don't think it's safe for me or for my family. By the same token, I don't want the government coming in and say, you know, I want to work. I want to open up my restaurant. You're going to shut me down. You're going to say, I can't open my door. I know the risks. I'm going to take those risks. This is my maximum regret is not being able to provide for my family and not continue with this. I don't think the government should shut that down either. This is what I mean by there's that middle ground between lockdown. Oh my God, we're going to lock everything down, ordered by the government, and some death cult saying, no, 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 you can't lock anything down. You can't stay at home. Get out there. Get out there. Some things are worth dying for, especially you're dying for me. And these are false extremes. They really are. You couple that with providing real protection, actual PPE for people, not theatrics, but this is what I still can't wrap my head around. We're a year and nine months into this, and we still don't have PPE in the form of effective, truly effective, just simple masks available for everyone. We don't have that, and I'll never get over that, never in a million years will I get over that. 
This is what I mean by how policy becomes dominated by political interests, because I can tell you why we don't have the political mask available for anyone. Who wins with that, right? What political narrative or tribe does that satisfy? No one, but is it our interest? So it doesn't happen because it's not in the interest of one of the political tribe to see it through. This is the kind of stuff that drives me nuts, but I don't think the answer is to give ourselves over to one of the political tribes. (laughs) No, no, I obviously agree with that. Is it your sense that we could, for the most part, return to normal work operations with proper PPE in the vast majority of cases? Yeah. I think this is the sort of thing that can make an enormous difference that's not theater. You don't have to get that R naught down to zero. What we're trying to do is to find a way to live with this so that we can pursue, so that we can go forward and seek our life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness as best we can. If everybody, if 90, 95% of people were double or triple vaxxed, would we need PPE? No, no. Wait, Adam, this is the critical thing here, right? I would rather achieve my vision of living with this as best we can and pursuing our hopes and dreams. I would rather achieve that through voluntary vaccination plus availability of wearing true PPE than a government that says, line up, we're giving you a shot so we can get the 95% done. There is another way, which is the voluntary vaccination and wearing true PPE. I think this works. And yet it doesn't satisfy anyone's political interest. Either you're a fucking slave if you're going to wear the mask. So it becomes this shibboleth, this object on the other side. And it becomes this theatrical thing for the other side. And what's lost here is what we started this conversation about, which is the little s. There's a reason why doctors and nurses wear N95s in the hospital. There's an actual reason why they do that, (laughs) because they work. And so do vaccines. Why do people get vaccines? Because they work. They actually really work. And there is a path here, but it's not a path that works for political interests. So it's a path we don't even consider. That's the thing, Adam. This is not even an option that is discussed. It's nowhere in any narrative or any discussion. Nowhere. And so it doesn't exist. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's an important point. And what's interesting to me, because in Cayman, it's an interesting microcosm. We have a minority of residents, but perhaps a small majority of voting citizens who are anti- vaccination for a variety of reasons. My children, of whom I have three, I know you have, is it three as well or four? Four, yep. Yep. So my children are wearing, now among non-voting citizens, there's a 97% vaccination rate for those who are eligible for vaccines. But because there is a small minority of citizens, of voters who are anti-vaccines, my children still need to wear masks all day at school. So my 11-year-old daughter who, and you know, if this is like two weeks, a month, there was an expiration date on this and we're all in this together and fighting the good fight, I'm all for it, okay? I might be a little frustrated, but in the end, I'm all for it. But there's now this open-ended expectation that my 11-year-old who personally has no material risk of serious illness or something more serious or hospitalization, 
from getting this or my 14 year old or my 16 year old is effectively held hostage to the voting preferences of a very small minority. I think this microcosm translates very directly to the situation experienced in most countries where you have some portion of the population who is preferring not to get vaccinated and is subjecting the rest of us to a set of protocols which, if extended ad infinitum, represent a substantial curtailment to quality of life. Yeah. You know, a couple of responses, right? And I don't mean this to come across as being, I use the word harsh or difficult. I do think this is the price that all of us as citizens pay for taking the preferences of that minority that you're describing seriously, meaning that their preferences are as valid as your or my preferences and that the inconvenience that we all, and because I think you're right, there's a microcosm that what you're describing is a, as an example, not a metaphor, but a concrete example of something that we all endure in many ways. I think it is something we must endure if we're going to take the preferences and the opinions of people who we think are wrong seriously. So I think the response to that should be not to deny them the expression of their preferences. The expression of that should be, I'll say, a structure by which a majority preferences can be more widely expressed in places of the commons, meaning like schools, like public schools, public meeting places and the like. I absolutely think that a government has the right and the responsibility to protect the people who live in these commons. At the same time, a lot of, I think, the appropriate response to, I'll say, a significant inconvenience is to remove yourself and or your children from that. It really is to find an alternative for schooling, right? And I don't say that lightly because I know how burdensome that is and how difficult that choice is and how weighty and expensive and time-consuming and on and on that kind of decision is. And yet, I think that living in a society that does not treat the preferences and the views of that minority as benighted and as wrongheaded as we may think they are, if we deny that, if we run roughshod over that, I promise you that is a worse world for our children. I promise you it is. In many ways, I agree. It's a real inconvenience. It's awful. I mean, aside from the fact that it is an inconvenience, I worry that the weight of the impositions of the minority on the majority is unsustainable. I worry that there will be a far more violent backlash against one group or the other. And I'm not talking about locally. This is a very isolated, but I think in several countries, there will be a critical moment where people get fed up and one side or the other begins to physically persecute the other side because the impositions are so large. And I will grant the size of the imposition 
of mandating vaccines is just as large as the imposition that the unvaccinated are imposing on the vaccinated. So trying to back away and be as impartial as possible, those inconveniences. Yeah, yeah. And I use that term intentionally, that term inconvenience, right? You could use the word harm, which has a very different impact and a meaning, right? Well, I think it's responsible to use the word inconvenience. I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a word that I used intentionally to try to trivialize, frankly, the real pain, the suffering. So, and I appreciate you continuing to use the word, but you don't have to, because what you're describing is it is hurt. It is harm. And all sides are feeling like it is, it is harm that is being imposed on them. I agree. Yep. And what we hear is then that siren call of a political entrepreneur saying they are harming us. And we're going to do whatever it takes to stop them, the other, from harming us. Then it turns us to thinking again of our nation. The gyre widens even further. Exactly right. It becomes not a nation of us. It becomes a physical territory where some of them live and some of us live. Your forecast here, where, like I say, this is not a mean reverting phenomenon. We don't forget the gyre widens still further than the center does not hold. My goal here is trying to describe an approach to a community of nation, right, that is built on these principles that even though they are inconvenient to live by, we do, because I promise you the alternative is worse. But, you know, it's hard to do because it's so easy to say, you know, I, they are harming us, so they're not us. And I want my president. And that is increasingly what we're getting. And so that's what we're going to get. So the question then I think for us, Adam, is, well, all right, if that's the way the world is going, how do you react to that? Yes. So how do you? We find our own communities and we reject, (laughs) I'll say, participation in the warring two tribes And it's really hard because we're all tied to our little dopamine machines, you know, our little smartphones here. This is my dopamine machine. And I'm addicted to it just like everyone else is. But we find our own community where we treat them as full-hearted, autonomous human beings. You ever see the show? It's an old show called The Prisoner with Patrick McGowan. It's he's, he's a spy, he's a British spy who's captured and he's sent off to an island where they try to break his spirit. And, but the catchphrase here is that I'm not a number, I am a free man. And we are all free people. And we have to identify other free people who we treat as people, not as a means to an end. The government, a politician, a corporation treats you as a means to an end. You're a number. And they will find numbers to show you that you are being harmed by them, by the other. And the reaction to it is not to try to fix it. I really believe we're beyond fixing at that kind of top-down level. I think that all we can hope for is to make the dark age that is to come <laughs> right, shorter and to preserve these principles of human autonomy and small L liberalism. That's the fight of our lives, at least the fight of my life. Says the psychohistorian. Exactly. <laughs> that's why we call our company, you know, Second Foundation Partners. That's, that's what it is. This is psychohistory. It's happening, Adam. It's happening. 
and we've got to keep the flame alive. So for people who want to find a way to get on with their lives, I'll give you an example. I haven't seen my family in going on two years, my mom and dad and my in-laws, my brother and sister and et cetera, and their families. I need to get on a plane to go do that. To get on a plane, I need a PCR test. Despite being triple vaxxed, I might test positive on a PCR test and be unable to fly. Now, as I go out and talk to, again, notwithstanding sample bias, et cetera, as I go out and talk to people, it is this warped reality where nobody cares about having the virus anymore. There's not one ounce of fear of the actual virus that all these policies are set up to manage. But everybody is terrified of testing positive on the PCR test because they aren't able to travel. Scared is another loaded word. But yeah, I'm scared of the virus still. I find it odd, you know, when I go into New York these days where, to your point, nobody cares. The restaurants are packed. There's no distance. There are no social behaviors. No one cares. And that worries the crap out of me. It does. I don't want to be around it so I can remove myself from it. I'll grant you what you're saying. No one cares. And they won't care until everyone starts getting sick again, in which case they'll care again. But the more important thing is what you were talking about earlier, Adam, about needing to get on a plane and go see your parents and having not seen people in a couple of years. And tick-tock, Adam. Tick-tock. I'd give everything to be able to see my dad again. Everything. It's a great line, Omar Khayyam. The moving hand writes and having writ moves on. Meaning you'll never get these two years back, Adam. You won't. So yeah, get on that effing plane and go see your parents. And if you get the PCR test and it keeps you from traveling and it throws off the plans and it costs you a lot of money, you know what you do? Then as soon as it's done, you book another ticket and you go. And that's what you do. And it's not fair. It's not right. It's all you But none of this is fair. And none of this is right or normal or fun. It's a plague visited upon the world. And we must not give in to our either our baser desires, nor must we give in to just a lethargy and, or, or it doesn't matter. It matters. It matters how we live our lives now, and it matters that you go see your parents, right? And we got to buckle up and we got to do all of that. <laughs> and it's no fun. And I come across like a grumpy old grandpa, you know, saying, yeah, eat your beans, young people. But yeah, you know what? We have to live our lives and we should be scared of the plague and we should help our neighbor. And that's how we get through it. Okay, but what does normal look like a year from now or two years from now or five years from now, Ben? If Actually, let me back it up one step. You said you're still profoundly, actually, I'm putting words in your mouth. You said you're still very concerned, I think. Correct me if I'm overstating. I'm scared of this virus and I'm scared of it for my children. I'm scared that I will die. I'm scared that I will have long COVID. That's a particular concern for my kids who have a lot longer to live than I do. This virus still scares the crap out of me. This could get contentious quickly. So I want to make sure that we're able to still sort of maintain some... <laughs> the way I've been thinking about it, let me put it this way, and why I keep being very interested in getting the sort of stratified data is because it allows me to think about risk relative to other things, other risks that I take every day. So I get in a car and I drive. I know that there are two road fatalities a week here in Cayman out of, let's call it 30 or 35,000 drivers. 
I let my kids go to the beach. When they're in the water, I don't watch them 100% of the time. I take risks for myself and I take risks for my family and for those that I care about every day in a mosaic, a constellation of ways. And when I look at the conditional probability of harm for myself and my children, and even I think for my parents who are now triple vaxxed, lots of things matter. No comorbidities, age, the brand of vaccine you got. The Swedish study actually makes clear that has actually a very large impact on how quickly the effects of the vaccine wane. So taking into account all these things, and again, giving due your point about there's science, but there's also lots of fuzziness around even those studies. But we know more than nothing. And it seems like we can have reasonable confidence that my conditional probability of harm and the probability of harm for those in my immediate environs are now on par with other risks that we knowingly take every day. Yep. Would you say that that's a fair characterization? Absolutely. So what do you want of me, Adam? I mean, my answer is yes, I get it. So you want government policy that allows you to live your life? I do too. I think that's what I've been saying. Do I want a government policy that requires everyone else in your community to get the vaccine and to do that? No, I don't. No, that's okay. I think, you know, you've established that and I'm still ruminating on that, but I don't outright disagree. But things like forcing PCR tests to get on planes, I guess what you're saying is that because some of the people on that plane may have made different choices about their vaccination status in order to preserve life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, these are the consequences that we need to put up with. Yes. I don't like taking off my shoes, you know, when I go into a plane. I think that so much of air travel and security and the like, I think it's totally theatrical. At the same time, I think there are some other really easily done safety steps that could be taken that would save enormous lives. Let's put seatbelts on school buses. Right. For sure. Let's put seatbelts on school buses, for God's sake. Yeah. But, hey... There's too much inconvenience, blah, 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 blah. You know, he's going to slow down the school, blah, blah, blah. Oh, please. Let's provide school lunches. Let's provide single-payer health care. There's lots of ways that we can invest in saving lives. Absolutely. <laughs> so I guess I'm asking, you know, what do you want of me, Adam? You answered the question, right? The PCR test exists part out of theatricality in the same way that so much of travel security exists for theater and as a political response of doing something as opposed to being an actual effective way at containing spread of this virus. So there's that. And many people have not made the same decisions you've made. And if nothing else, giving those people who have not made the same decisions you've made that kind of, oh, I wonder if I'm going to pass this PCR test. Or, oh, crap, I didn't. And I do need to quarantine and the like. I don't think that's an unreasonable imposition. What I think is an unreasonable imposition is to line up everyone who lives in your community and say, you get a vaccine. Okay. So then let me move forward then with what I think may be sort of the final question, since you've generously gifted me 90 minutes of your time. Oh, I love it. That's great. What does this look like in a year or two or three or five without forcing you to make sort of any sort of specific prognostications, but just maybe paint a picture of some possibilities of what this might look like going forward over the next few years if we can't find a way to connect as a community in a way where a sufficient proportion of people are motivated of their own volition and sense of community to act 
in a pro-social way so that all of us can move forward with our lives. We'll end up in a situation where people are either vaccinated or have had it and have got some protection from that, natural immunity, or they're dead. You'll end up with those three conditions. We will achieve herd immunity one way or another, Adam. Right, <laughs> right. right. That, that's the thing about if herd immunity is possible, you will achieve it one way or another. The bigger issue for me is if herd immunity is not possible. If you get an endemic virus that mutates in a way, consistently mutates in a way such that it evades either the vaccination or the natural immunity. Either way we go, whichever one of those paths occurs, normal, two years, five years from now, it won't be as good or nice as the normal we enjoyed pre-COVID. I don't know what to tell you except that we have to grow up and accept that, right? That life, either as individuals or as a community, is not an, always an arrow that goes up and to the right. It just ain't. And bad things happen to our world. And so going back to normal, that always kind of, I said, well, you know what? We ain't going back to normal. So what do you want to do about it? You want to cry about it? You know, say, oh, we have to go back to normal. Well, you know what? That ain't an option. The options are, where do we go from here? And where we're going from here is a shit show of politics next year in the United States, and then the mother of all shit shows in 24. And the virus creates its own normal, and it's a worse world than it was before the virus. If we go down this political road that we are clearly going down, that leads to a much worse world than any bad world that this virus could ever create. And that's what I want to try to mitigate. I don't think I can stop it, but I am going to do everything I can to try to shorten its impact and mitigate its impact because that's a worse world than anything COVID could ever deliver to us. Yeah, well said. I'm sensing that there may have been a path or a theme that you had kind of hoped we would explore a little bit more, but we didn't get to or it didn't naturally stem from the line of the conversation. Is there a question I failed to ask, but you think is really important? Adam, this has been the best conversation and a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time. And there's nothing left out. I'll tell you that on Epsilon Theory, you know, the place where I do all my writing, I've stopped writing about COVID. Stopped writing about it. Doesn't do any good. And so I'm so happy. <laughs> Right? I'm so delighted to have this conversation to be able to talk about this again. And I keep hoping against hope that these sort of conversations will pierce through the auto-tuning that I think almost always happens. I think you've got a wonderful voice and venue for, for trying to do that. Now, nothing's been missed here, but an enormous amount for me personally has been gained. So thank you very much for having me. Oh, for me as well, Ben, and I really appreciate your generosity and your clarity, your clear eyes, because I can tell you, I don't know if you subscribe to the affect theory of decision-making, where so most people think that you perceive, you think, and then you act. And in reality, a lot of the evidence from both psychology and neurology suggests, in fact, what happens is we feel, we perceive, we feel. And then we act, and then the cerebral cortex is really just there to provide justification for our actions, exactly, right? And I have found that I was, for most of the last 18 months, seeking out information that was consistent with my belief that 
we were doing the right thing in trying to contain this thing and flattening the curve and getting as many people vaccinated as possible, et cetera. And now there's this creeping frustration and resentment and anger. And my attention was turning to different sources of information that are more sort of feeding that set of feelings instead of the other. And just in noticing that, I thought it's really important at this moment for me to get a gut check. And I feel like the big takeaway, and there were many, but sort of the overarching takeaway from this conversation for me is if we want to preserve what's most important about open society and liberal democracies, then the thing that is causing us the most frustration ends up sort of needing to be the thing we love most about where we live and who we are. <laughs> you got it, man. Because if you lose that, all of the other paths that you might go down are way worse. So that's a really critical takeaway. And I feel more centered in my perspective on this as a result. So thank you. Thank you, Adam. We've already lost a lot with this modern plague. Let's try not to lose ourselves in, in addition to what we've already lost. Absolutely. Yep. Once again, I'm a proud member of the pack. All right on. Love it. Thanks so much for your time and your insights and wisdom. And I look forward to the next time we can maybe get together in person again and share a that would be nice. Share a beer be or a nice. glass of wine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first bottle's on me. Love it. All right. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new, and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.